0: First of all, Sophie, thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to us. We've done well over 50 podcasts and I have to say I'm probably looking forward to this one as much as any of the previous ones. You were obviously involved with York City as a board member for so long, but ultimately a supporter at heart. When when did that support start and and what, what do you remember about your first sort of times that you went to Booth and Crescent? So I think I first went in the late
1: 80s and... I really wasn't expected to kind of enjoy it. I think I was sort of dragged along. You know, I was very much initiated by my dad and my brother. And, you know, in those days, in the sort of late 80s, there weren't actually a lot of girls and women that were watching football at the time. So it was fairly unusual. But I just loved it. We started watching, first of all, um, On the Terrace, David Long's stand, well as it is now, and yeah, it was it was just happy days. We started going then with a gang from the local village, Farlington, where I grew up, and um, we had a we used to have a pool team in the pub, and we claimed that we were the Farlington Reds, <laughs> and um, would go to matches and just really happy, happy days. I mean, I think it is for all fans that were watching in those late eighties, you know, into the into the nineties. It was just such amazing times brilliant players that when i bump into them now i'm i'm still always in awe i was like i actually saw paul stancliffe um quite recently and i said to him Oh, you were on my bedroom wall. You know, you, 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 do, you do, you know, remember these guys so fondly. And um, yeah, just really, really happy times um and, and great camaraderie, met some nice people at the club. And yeah, it was, it became pretty much my my obsession and my life in
0: my early teens. The late 80s York City were on a bit of a decline weren't it before obviously they rose again in the, in the yeah. 90s with everything <laughs> that happened with Wembley and Old Trafford but it sounds to me like it wasn't so much in those early days as what was going on on the pitch but the kind of the, the camaraderie like you say that sort of community that you got yourself into and you know that's almost as important as, as sort of on the pitch isn't it as a fan?
1: It was really because it was it was just something completely different something that you know I'd never experienced and standing on the terrace. And the chants and the the anti Scarborough chants that you know I used to relate to my friends at school and yeah I mean it, you know it, you know back in those days obviously yeah it was it, there were some tough times. Uh, With John Bird, and it wasn't the best of times. And then, obviously, there was the Renaissance after that, and the arrival of John Ward, who was, you know, I always think was really phenomenal and really changed things enormously at York City. But yeah, it was. It was just being on the terrace as a kid. I mean, it was just amazing. It's all 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 you wanted to do, and getting that buzz. And I think that that's why it's so important. I know we're all we can watch as much football as we want these days on the TV, and you know this football of amazing quality like you saw you know Liverpool Man City the other day you know it's just phenomenal but you just can't beat live football and you know I've tried to instill this in my children and they have been dragged to many many very grim non-league grounds (laughs) around the country but it's important and you know they've got the buzz too you know you it's being part of something isn't it and I don't think as a kid growing up I ever felt part of anything
0: until I went to watch York City. you sort of mentioned that when we were messaging last week that you were at some of those iconic games as well, weren't you, in the 90s, like Wembley and Old Trafford and Goodison Park. What, what's your memories of those sort of times?
1: Yeah, my memories of Wembley were just, the whole journey was is, was incredible. I mean, I was 16 years old. I think I was having a few beers illegally, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think that was condoned by my uh, parents at the time because it was such a big occasion. And we went down actually as a group and we all went to Covent Garden Garden first, and it was like a big day out in London, and then made our way over to Wembley, and it, it was um, it was obviously the old Wembley with the towers, and yeah, it was just incredible. I mean, when it went to penalties at a later date, and I had the pleasure of spending a lot of time with Wayne Hall, and when I worked at the club because he was still a player, you know, I, I always used to say to him, "Oh, Gina, I never thought you'd." I never thought you'd score that penalty, <laughs> but he did. Um, and it was, you know, it was just an incredible time, I think, for, you know, being a young person in York and being part of that Wembley journey. And later as well, I... am. Um, you know, was friends with with Alex Beddingham, who was the, the was the child mascot on the day. You know, so it's uh, you know lots of people have had sort of tremendous sort of experiences in their childhood through York City, and um, you just never forget them. And then, yeah, going to I mean, certainly going to Old Trafford, I remember that very well. I'd started university at Newcastle; I'd just only been there a month or so, and um, you know, drove down to York from Newcastle to to go to Old Trafford and genuinely thought that it would be a good result if we lost sort of 6-0, given the quality of the Man United team at the time. Mm. And it was just like, it was a fairy tale like that. Because I don't think, I mean, we comprehensively beat Manchester United. It was, you know, it, it, there was no luck involved. And yeah, to, to be there at Old Trafford and to experience that was just incredible. And for many people, I think it was some, you know, their their first game. I mean, to think that some people might have gone to that game as their first game
0: watching York City and to see that <laughs> kind of um, performance must have been tremendous Yeah, and I think you're right I, I think 3-0 actually flattered Man United when you look back at the highlight you know Paul Barnes got a goal that, that wasn't offside and could, oh. it could have been more couldn't it it was, it was an incredible night like you say and and sort of those, yeah. sort of, um, those times as well when you first started watching York I, th- I think you started going in a pop stand at, at one point as well that sort of nostalgic sort of paying your extra pounds to get into that stand that stuff like that just what happens <laughs> in the future will it? It, it these sort of old grounds like Booth and Crescent are just sort of slowly dying out aren't they yeah Yeah I mean the the transition to the
1: pop stand I think was really due to my dad not wanting to stand and I think I was quite disappointed at the time but felt like I had a sort of obligation to my family rather than to be uh, hanging out at the back of the long hair. So yeah so we moved to the pop stand and again you know it was a another little new little family you know, all the people that would sit around us, it was, there was um, Barry and Brian Stokes and Brian then became Yorkie the Lion at a later stage as well all these people that used to sit around us, you had your own kind of jokes your own camaraderie, remember people would bring a box of mince pies or whatever on Boxing Day and hand them out and you know, again it was just being part of a family and we always just loved to obviously abuse the linesman um, (laughs) in the Longhurst (laughs) sorry in the Potsdam great again very very happy times supporting you know the club where and from the city where you were born
0: and you you mentioned there about going off to university and I I think you got a degree and then you did a, a master's in some sort of football related qualification. I was just wondering what what did that course sort of consist of? Because I imagine that would have been quite quite new and quite niche at the time.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah. I'd finished at um I was about to finish at Newcastle where I did classical studies and I really didn't know what I was going to do and I saw an advert in the Times newspaper and it was for an MBA in football industries at Liverpool University and the head of department was Rogan Taylor who had been involved a lot in the Hillsborough sort of the campaign for justice for the victims of Hillsborough and yeah it was a fairly new course I think this was the second year it had been running and kind of My desire really was to work in the football industry. I saw that there was an opportunity. Football was changing because of the influx of of money from Sky and it was becoming more professional and it was deemed that there was a place for graduates within football to try and improve things off the field. So as a young, enthusiastic York City fan that had a desire to work in in football I trundled off to to Liverpool and 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 did a year there and did my master's so it, it was basically a standard MBA but then with modules that related to to football and football finance and then yeah and then it was a case of you know trying to find a job I did my dissertation at Manchester City so I spent three months there at Main Road and that was just fantastic to be honest it was just the friendliest place I'd never sort of been and taken any interest specifically in Man City, but yeah, it it was um, it was a great place to be. I shared an office with Mike Summerby, who spent much of the time telling me filthy jokes, which was (laughs) brilliant. And um, yeah, it was really interesting there because they, although you know they'd fallen from grace a bit and were actually playing you know in in league well what isn't now league mm. 1 with York City they were still an enormous club but they just were in the middle of Moss Side in Manchester and they would leave the doors open and there were kids that used to come in and you know you used to have to sort of entertain children and hear about children's problems and you know it's a real proper community club and i found it fascinating and that's why i decided to do my uh, on fan loyalty at Manchester City because their crowds has actually increased and that was quite interesting to see how actually being relegated had actually galvanised support within the city and they had, you know, their attendances had increased. And I looked into it and then interviewed a lot of people. And it was really mainly due to the fact that they were actually one of the very, very first football clubs to create a junior fan club. So the junior blues. And this was done, you know, quite early, I think in maybe late sixties, early seventies. And there was no doubt that it was clear that capturing the attention um, of children at a young age cemented support in the future. Yeah, so I had a great time there. And then it was a, a trying to apply, applied to lots and lots of football clubs for jobs. And, you know, it was pretty difficult. And then I um, happened to get a job at York City.
0: I believe you sort of wrote your own job title as well. But I think it was public relations and... Um... <laughs> And correct me if I'm wrong. Sort of public relations is sort of about proving, improving sort of your image and your sort of brand and, and things like that. What? How did that job come about then?
1: So there was actually a workshop that had taken place, a marketing workshop where fans were invited to attend, and there were, um, you know, some key people went to that workshop that have subsequently been involved with the club. And the idea, and I think Josh Easby had initiated the workshop, who runs the, um, you know, the Arthur Bottom email newsletter. And yeah, I attended the workshop and I met Douglas Craig. And as a result of that, I kind of got offered a job. It was all a bit kind of vague and a bit strange when I look back. So he didn't really know what he wanted me to do exactly, but he felt that I had some good ideas. And I think he probably felt he probably quite liked me and probably felt that, you know, he would give me an opportunity, which I was grateful for at the time. Yeah, I I arrived on my first day and unfortunately, nobody else knew I was starting. (laughs) <laughs> so I think it was a, a sort of autocratic decision by Douglas Craig. And um, I turned up on day one and faced with blank faces from the office staff and nobody ne- knowing who I who
0: I was and why I was there. Did that, did that sort of make you feel a bit underwhelmed to some extent? Because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you, you're quite highly educated at this point. You've just done a master's. You've done a good placement at Man City. Like you said, no one knew who you were on your first day. And I think they didn't even have a computer for you and stuff like that. Were you feeling underwhelmed or were you sort of thinking now oh, this is still a dream come true because it's the club that I support and and I want to work in football.
1: Yeah, I think I was really naive at the time when I look back and I think I was just full of enormous enthusiasm and loads and loads of ideas. You know, you do look back on, on those days and it, it was really tough. I have to say it was a tough environment. I think it was difficult being a graduate. I think it was difficult being a young woman. You know, this is 1999 we're talking about. So, you know, I was only, yeah, I would be 22. It was a real hard challenge, but I had didn't know anything better or you know it was a new experience for me so I just took it as it came and just tried my very best and was faced with quite a lot of resistance to change but then at the same time I probably was incredibly annoying (laughs) you know had lots and lots of ideas bombarded everybody with plans for change and wanted to revolutionize completely and you know I should have probably and if you were an older person, I think going into that situation, you may have done it at a slightly different pace. You know, it's my club as well. So I felt passionately about it. Um, and I think that is the beauty of, of having people working in football that do care because, you know, you just get that extra mile out of them. You know, they want things to succeed. They want the club to be viewed positively in the community. And that was where I was coming from.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had that written down as well about sort of working in a sort of male-orientated industry as as it was back then. Thankfully, football's a little, a lot more kind of inclusive sport now, I think. Were you conscious of back then or... Because you talked about being naive. Were were you conscious? Were were there any sort of times that you look back and you sort of think, if I was the person I am now, I would I would say something or do something differently?
1: Yes, I think so. I think there was um, I think some things went on that were wouldn't be acceptable in this day and age. You know, there there were obviously women working at the football club, so it wasn't anything sort of new but yeah you it was certainly an environment where you know you you did as you were told and you you weren't encouraged to challenge and that was quite difficult for me I did become quite disillusioned you know quite quickly really and lasted in that role for about a year and a half I did try to apply to other football clubs but I didn't realize that it works a bit like players or it did in those days so if you were applied to an the football club they had to ask the permission of of the football club that where you're employed for you to go almost like a transfer and I don't think I got any assistance there wasn't much uh, assistance to try and to try and help me progress my career. So I got an opportunity actually from, um, and it was my brother and my father were working together in in JM Packaging. They had tried to recruit somebody in sales and that had fallen through and they needed a graduate to come and work in the business in sales. And, you know, I was pretty having a pretty tough time at York City at, at, at that point. And I decided, well, maybe I'm a bit too early for football. You know, maybe Mm. it's not going to change Mm. at the pace that I would want it to. And I decided to therefore leave. And that was quite sad for me, really, because, you know, that is very much my dream and what I wanted to
0: do. Sounds to me like it was the right job, York City, but at the wrong time.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, I just didn't see any way that I could progress. And so I thought that I would take this opportunity to work at JM Packaging in sales, to actually gain some sort of additional business experience. Didn't really envisage that I would stay there, but um, you know, just take the opportunity and, and see where it, it would go. And um yeah, and so I so I left left football
0: temporarily. And just before we sort of move on from that that period what what was your relationship like with Douglas Craig and, and what was he like when you sort of said no I'm, I'm leaving I'm gonna you know go work in the packaging industry I actually had a positive relationship with Douglas Craig which is
1: quite difficult for me to look back on given what happened afterwards but when I worked there um, he was the most supportive person to be honest but it was really difficult because I mean you know, I was asked to do things that just didn't sit well. I mean, you know, my job was to try and defend the fact that we were the only club, you know, not to sign a kick racism out of football charter, our only club in the football league. And, you know, as a 22-year-old as a with quite liberal views, uh, that was um, very player. difficult for me to try and defend. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I tried my best and we had, you know, some high profile black players at the club at the time. And, and you know, I used to have to sit down with them and, you know, try and justify it to them as well, because they, you know, they were pretty cross about the situation. Mm-hmm. And we tried to kind of say, look, you know, we are a really inclusive club. We just don't adhere to the politics It was never going to work. It was really tough and it just didn't sit well with me because, you know, I was I was the person that used to have to go on the radio and and try and try and justify these actions. I think as an older person, I may have done things differently. I may have said, you know, I may have said to the board, look, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to sign up to it. And there's no, there's no way out of this. I don't know why they didn't. It was crazy.
0: I mean, little did you know that in the not too distant future, you'd, you'd be back having a significant sort of role in trying to save the football club from going under. At, at what point did you and, and the supporters trust sort of decide to step in? Because I think history has sort of changed. Because I, I vaguely remember at the time that because the team were doing quite well on the pitch, but John Batchelor still had quite a lot of supporters and people thought that he was actually all right. And it was, you know, people have rewritten it as in like everyone knew that, that kind of the club were were kind of financially in ruins and, and he he didn't kind of know what he was doing. But, but I I think at the time when the team were doing quite well on the pitch, we had like Michael Proctor scoring a lot of goals that, that people, some people still thought he was all right.
1: Yeah, I think so. He came along and I think that there was some doubt about his credentials. I think there was some suspicion that he wasn't quite the person that he portrayed himself to be. So there was a a, a nervousness and a cautiousness, I think, from the the trust point of view. But yeah, I think like everybody, you just hope, don't you? You hope that this night in shining armor is going to be positive for the club and that that you you know it's all going to be brilliant and there's going to be investment and players and you know we're going to do brilliantly on the pitch but yeah it it, it soon became there were things that were going on that we we're aware of at the club that were out of control and his behavior was out of control as well you know there was a lot of drinking going on and a lot of excessive spending so it became clear that this was not being run in a in a proper fashion.
0: I mean, I know meetings went went back and forth. Just how close was the club from going under? And I know Jason sort of likes to remind the fans quite a lot that, that he put fifty thousand pounds of his own money in. And how critical was those, sort of those dark days?
1: So it was in, it was incredibly touch and go. Obviously, the trust had been founded. And we were there. I think where we where we were really really fortunate was that we had a lot of capable individuals on that trust board, specifically Paul Rawns. Who had been working at Deloitte in the um, football um, finance? you know area and he was just you know incredibly smart and we had people that were capable of looking at things sensibly and creating a plan and a strategy to actually rescue the club but ultimately it was down to fans putting their hands in the pockets yes individuals um, contributed um, significant funds that, that really helped at the time but you know these bucket collections were crazy we were raising enormous amounts of money and it was just normal fans that were putting their hands in the pockets. So I think, you know, if you had to summarize it, yeah, there were there were individuals that um that did help enormously, but all in all, it was a it was a big team effort, and we were lucky to have such capable people leading it. I think that would be yeah. my summary of saving it. But yeah, no, it was it was very close to closure, and you know, it was tough negotiations with the Inland Revenue, and that was really hard. But, but yeah we managed to rescue it, take it out of administration, and then the hard work really began because it was unraveling all of the contracts and all of the onerous. <laughs> Deals that had been done that were harming the harming the football club and we needed to cut costs and we needed to change the culture. And yeah, it was it was it was a really, really hard task when I look back, but um a fantastically rewarding experience for me personally and I learned so much. Um there was a lot of fighting, you know, it was tough. You had to be tough, mm-hmm. and I think I grew up quickly, you know, we were having really hard negotiations still with Douglas Craig you know, it was a vicious environment and uh, you had to be strong. And I think that I learned that that really quickly that you just have to be strong in these situations if you want to succeed and we did and and um, you know but it was very much a team effort there were lots and lots of people who contributed to that
0: I mean I, I remember the relief at seeing sort of I think it was you and Jason with the York City Soccer Club signs that were broken taken down on, on the day that the was <laughs> saved and, but it did feel sort of that relief was short lived because there was such a huge rebuilding job to do and um, I was wondering if you could talk me through the Chris Brass appointment because at the time he was a real sort of clubman who, who showed great loyalty you know not leaving on mm. his contract and was that a reward for him or was that kind of needs muster you know terry was on a salary and you needed to get someone that, that was kind of you know, going to be significantly cheaper, and who, whose idea was it to appoint him?
1: Well, the board looked at the whole situation. Um, you know, in, in those days, decisions were very made much a very much made as a as a board. There were two issues really. One, yes, we had to save costs going forward, but also, sadly, Terry Dolan had you know done a good job there, but he hadn't really bought into the supporter ownership kind of aspect. Lots of the players had deferred their salaries, lots had helped in some way, the campaign and rallied round. And really, whether Terry didn't understand it fully, or he didn't have a desire to, he hadn't really been helpful to the cause. And there were things within his contract that the club just couldn't afford I think you know the main mm-hmm. issue being you know mm-hmm. a, a large jaguar car that was costing I think close to a thousand pound a month and we we just couldn't afford it so we had to make changes and people don't like change you know it's difficult but we had to make drastic changes because I've always maintained this statement and I maintain it now that decisions in football can be really difficult but you have to have to always, Act in the best interest of the football club itself. You can't think about personalities. You can't think about players and sentimentality. And you can't think about yourself and how you might view things or how it might benefit you. It, every decision has to be made in the best interest of the football club, and that's all that we did. And yeah, we we took you know a lot of grief over that decision. And you know, at the start of the next season, when Chris Brass was flying, you know, it, it looked like it had been a good decision Mm. but obviously in the end you know we did face relegation and maybe you know that was the wrong move but Chris was clearly a key person in the in the dressing room had been leading by example and we felt that we give him the opportunity to be player manager and I suppose we've seen more over the years that that player manager role kind of doesn't work but you know we did have some good times with with chris and he helped us a lot in those early days and you know we just wished we wished we'd so wanted him to be successful and it didn't it was a, it was a sad day when we got relegated it really was because it was a bit of a shock as well don't think we quite thought it would happen and again it was right you know you've got another challenge now so you've got you know, you've got the club on an even footing financially, and then you've got now the challenge of being, you know, relegated into the, into the conference. And that was tough, but at the same time, really, really emotional, because I think the fans just understood that so much had gone on and it was so difficult behind the scenes that I remember just of fans just going on the pitch and just cheering and clapping on the last day of the season and it was gosh to be a board member and to get and to to be responsible for you know relegating your football club and um, to get that kind of response was was really something quite special and something
0: I'll always remember in terms of the board I think I think there was yourself uh, Jason <laughs> Steve Beck Terry Doyle I mean, how did the dynamics work because I think I know you took up the communications role naturally but but I think you know, you all still had your other kind of jobs as well. How, how did that kind of work as a board? It
1: worked quite well, really. Yeah, obviously everybody had day jobs, but we would have a lot of meetings in the evening and we were, we were new to it. We had to manage all the staff within the organisation as well, which wasn't easy as well because they were used to doing things a certain way. And yeah, the dynamics were quite straightforward in those early days. It was a bit difficult, the relationship with Jason and Steve. I think Steve was a, was um, had been obviously hugely involved with the trust, um, was very much a figurehead. But at the same time, I think in terms of a leader in the boardroom, that had always really been Jason from day one, and he had more sort of business experience. So it's quite difficult because you had this, you know, you had a kind of figurehead chairman, who was well liked but then the person who was driving leading things in the boardroom was the managing director I think Jason's title was at the time so it was a kind of there was a bit of an unease about about that but um, actually very little conflict we were quite a cohesive board and you know Terry was the accountant. The accountant's always negative. So, you know, I was the (laughs) communications community. I'm always positive. You know, it balanced out well, really. And we weren't completely new to it. I think we were referred to quite in a derogatory way by a member of staff as, you know, the rookie board. And I still am proud, although, you know, that relegation hurt, I'm still very proud that that
0: rookie board did some pretty good things in those early days. Guy Mowbray said to me, in fact, he said this to me on more than one occasion, the less you know about the sort of game of football, the better, really. Obviously, you you were new to the board. You've worked (laughs) a little bit before. Did you experience anything like that? What was it like dealing with agents and signing players and stuff like that? Do Do you get kind of what he's saying there, Guy?
1: Yeah, I do get what he's saying, because the problem is that if you have a view on the playing side of things, you inevitably... A strong view you inevitably inevitably get involved and you inevitably get involved with agents and players and scouting players and who's good or who isn't good and that can be dangerous because you can undermine number one undermine the manager but two you can get carried away and you can start spending money on things that you don't need to spend money on i have always had a firm position that you, the board is responsible for creating a budget and you then give that budget to the manager and the manager has to be responsible for recruiting and dealing with agents and team selection. I mean, the board, at no point have I ever been involved with a board that's ever tried to steer team selection. But certainly, as Guy said, the less you get involved in that football side, the the better it is. You've almost got to compartmentalise You've got to think that, OK, running a business, we're working closely with a manager. The manager has the budget. It's up to him. Because at the end of the day, it, it, it's, he lives and dies by his decisions. We then have, when we go what on a Saturday or Tuesday night, whatever it may be, Yeah, we can get completely carried away and we can feel enormously passionate, but we shouldn't be involved in those football decisions. You know, it it, it has to be kept separately. So I understand what Guy means. And you see very, very sensible people in the business world making very strange decisions when it comes to football. And that's because, you know, football is a motive, but I think you have to have boundaries.
0: You mentioned there about the board sort of setting a budget and I I think that was sort of apparent for Chris Brass and in the second season that he was in charge and and I think that budget was pretty much spent up. The team weren't doing so well, got beat 5-1 at Scarborough. Eventually Chris lost his job and then you moved in for Billy McEwen. I just wondered sort of why him? Because he did a great job I think in those early days sort of like wheeling and dealing and sort of changing things tactically because there wasn't really any money for him to spend. What made you go for someone like Billy? Because he's obviously complete contrast to Chris Brass. Yeah, so
1: we Obviously, the the role was available. So, we had quite a lot of applications, which you do in in football, you know, you get sacks full. Some are um, credible, some are brilliant and make you laugh. And you're so grateful to have received them because they're, you know, pure comedy. So, yeah, so we went through an interview process and we, I think, we interviewed four or five candidates. I remember the interviews quite well. They took place at JM Packaging because obviously we didn't want them to be held at the football club because, you know, we wanted to keep things confidential and the board the whole board interviewed each of the candidates why we went for billy was that billy exuded discipline and i think what was clear to us was that the football club at the time was pretty much a holiday camp viv busby had come in who's a super guy really really great guy he'd come in to, to help chris and that hadn't kind of worked out you know we, we genuinely brought him in to assist rather than to take over from chris he was really brought in to try and help as a as a, a more senior experienced person but i just think there was a bit of a relaxed yeah holiday camp kind of feel about the place and and we understood that the club needed or the team needed discipline and it needed structure and that's something that Billy could deliver and Really, he was phenomenal. I have to say, he just changed things completely, and it's just what we needed. He came at just the right time for the board. You know, he was very, very meticulous about his dress, and you know, it's he smartened up the team. He brought discipline, which was needed, structure. As you said, he just plucked out some brilliant players that made those couple of years incredibly exciting. I sadly went to Billy's funeral a few weeks ago and it was really nice to see Clayton Donaldson there. He was the only person from that era that was present and, you know, we reminisced, Clayton and I, about those days. Clayton completely acknowledged that he was pretty much on the scrap heap of football. He wasn't going anywhere and he was incredibly grateful to Billy for taking that chance on him and he turned his career around and he, he created a fantastic living and a career for Clayton and exciting football for us to watch. I mean, I remember um, the director's seats were padded leather in you know, quite old fashioned in uh, Bootham Crescent. And um in those days you know I was partial to a, a high heel or two and you know I said to Clayton at Billy's funeral I said Clayton I said I got so excited I jumped on the chair and my stiletto heel went right through the, the padded leather you know this is the kind of level of excitement that you that you brought at the time and I think it's what we all needed as well and getting Neil Bishop you know he was a great great addition um you know later on you know obviously Richard Brody and some really great times with Billy and he was a great person to deal with. I don't know if he was seen by the fans in the same way. He was quite a tough person, but just
0: a great sense of humour. And behind the scenes, really, really quite a soft person. I totally agree yeah. with everything you've said there about Billy. So, therefore, it must have been a really difficult decision to then part, part company with him because turned around that really difficult situation. We then had a, a good season. I think we came eighth and then we got into the playoffs the season after that. Lost Clayton Donaldson with no finance to, to yeah. kind of replace him. And then he sat kind no, of his first bad, bad spell. Must have been really difficult. I, I thought at the time it was quite a ruthless sort of decision from the board. Was, was that a, a conscious decision from the board? going forward? Or was it just that, like like I mentioned before, you know, sentiment has to go out the window?
1: I think it's my one and only regret, to be honest. I think I personally should have fought harder for Billy because I don't think it was the right decision. I think that it was clear that the players had switched off. It, it was tough on the players and it was, you know, an old school way of coaching. So yes, I could see the players... Had switched off at that point I think they wanted some light relief it was very intense but it is my one regret that I think that I should have fought harder with the rest of the board to keep Billy but then you know we had this fantastic run afterwards with Colin Walker as caretaker because I do think the players were quite relieved at the time that Billy had gone because you know he was so strict with them and I think this is where we're in a realm now aren't we with, with a more modern era of manager and I think it's clear that you have to be everything you know you have to have the discipline the respect but you have to have that personable side the the arm around the shoulder it's just that that whole man management which you know Alex Ferguson was obviously absolutely amazing uh, because he, he he was a friend of Billy McEwan's actually funnily enough I, um, I met Alex Ferguson at an opening of Northwich Victoria Stadium I was randomly invited to and I was sat on the next table to Alex Ferguson and I had a chat with him and, and about Billy and it was actually at a time when and he was cursing Billy because the coach had been broken into the York City coach at a service station and somebody that you know the thief had stolen Billy McEwan's telephone phone and it had Alex Ferguson's number in his telephone so Alex Ferguson was getting all these kind of calls prank calls from Billy McEwen and the thief that had stolen his phone so um but yeah I mean I watched going back to kind of man management you know I watched the documentary over Christmas or whatever with you know the Netflix one um with with Alex Ferguson and it was just that hilarious story that Ryan Giggs told about how you know the end of season function and that he didn't his bow tie wasn't quite straight or his button wasn't was undone and he you know he got a told off by Alec and then you know Eric Cantona walks in in like a white suit and trainers and you know he says look you know that's that's style boys you know it's that kind of man management and finding a manager that can do all of that is really, really tough. So, yeah, so Billy, I think the players were relieved when he went and I think that's why we went on that great run with with Colin Walker immediately
0: afterwards. And I mentioned Clayton Donaldson before there where it was kind of done by a loophole, weren't there? You know, got no money from, from Hibernian when he was clearly worth probably about half a million pounds at the time. Similarly, unlucky with with sort of later on with Onomi Sodji where you, you fought really hard to get him a work permit and then he walked out to go to Barnsley <laughs> and also having an antiquated stadium where the hospitality boxes sort of face the car park how difficult was it to try sort of bring the club forward when all these sort of different things were, were going on off the pitch?
1: I think at the time we felt so cross about the Clayton situation. And I think I personally felt cross with Clayton at the time. You know, I'd had long conversations with him and so had Jason about don't listen to your agent, got to get the best move for you and think about what the club has done for you in Billy, you know, we'd, we'd rebuilt his career. And yeah, I think we felt really, really tough that, that he went because we kept him you know we could have sold him to an English club in the January window we got an offer for I think 250,000 from, from an English club and it was just like right do we take the money or do we keep this amazing goal scorer our only real chance of promotion? And, you know, we had to weigh it up. Promotion to the club was worth a million quid, you know, getting back into the Football League. How would it be viewed by the fans if we let him go in the January when we had a chance? And, you know, obviously with hindsight, we should have taken the money. But you have to do what was best at the time. And, you know, we felt that Clayton and his goals he was scoring was our biggest chance of promotion. So we kept him, but it did, it hurt enormously when it went, when he went and we, we didn't receive any finances. It was a really big blow. And at least now you can meet, and I know obviously he's returned to York City, but you can kind of get over these things and we all grow up and we all change and he probably wouldn't do the same thing now. But he was a young boy that was influenced heavily by an agent that really didn't have
0: his interests at heart or... Or York Cities, And Jason took over as chairman and your dad came on the board too. Is it easy or hard working closely with family? Because I can imagine it must be very difficult to separate sort of family life. I don't know what your family dynamics like, but having a meal together or whatever, Mm -hmm. it must be difficult to kind of separate that. And obviously you were working in the family business as well. What was it like working as a family?
1: I think in early days, it helped to be honest, because we were able to discuss things and get things done in a more social environment. You know, so you could talk about things and talk about ideas and things that you wanted to take to the board and board meetings behind the scenes it was quite helpful really and also you you know how people operate so that helps on a board because by no means did we all agree at any point I don't know whether there was ever a perception that because we were family we would all just say you know mm. all vote the same way or all have the same opinion that wasn't the case at all we would have We're quite very different people, to be honest, all three of us. So, yeah, we
0: did differ, but it actually did make it easier
1: that we saw each other so much because we were
0: able to get an enormous amount of work done. The club managed to persuade the supporters' trust sort of ownership to switch to JM packaging. Was that a difficult decision given that your own roles within that supporters trust had helped sort of save the club but again I guess it was a without the sentiment it was a needs must. It
1: it was a needs must and it it was the right decision at the time. I mean I'd become quite disillusioned with the trust at that point. I think I'd left the board maybe resigned from the trust board. I just felt at the time that the trust the trust board had changed in personnel and I just felt like they wanted to be like policemen or Almost police the board and scrutinize every decision uh, rather than support and encourage so the relationship had, had soured a bit and I you know I'm a big advocate of supporter ownership and I still am but it wasn't working and there was very little effort energy or fundraising so I think at the time it was the right decision because it was only fair and in those days there was no uh, excessive overspending or anything like that. You know, the the club was being run on a really, you know, tight budget. Certainly Billy McEwen's budget will probably be a quarter of what the club is is operating at now but it wasn't fair that the a company who you know was putting money into the club albeit in loans had you know had a high risk because it didn't have any any ownership so i think it was only fair that the ownership went you know to to jm packaging because of its contribution but rightly and i think that sort of manifested itself now that, you know, there had to be had to be done on a proper basis and it had to have safeguard. And I think, again, Paul Rawnsley was enormously important in, in structuring that deal. So I think, yeah, I think at the time it was the right thing to do. I just wish over the years there had been more cohesive involvement and relationship with the supporters trust. I think that's where the model has failed. I don't think it's a bad model, but I think it's failed because that relationship has, has not worked
0: I mean the ultimate aim was was obviously to get back to the Football League mm-hmm. and have a new stadium got so close the Martin Foyle I, I just wondered what your kind of memories are of, of that time and it must have been So gut-wrenching to get to the final of the playoffs. It's so close to getting back to the Football League and then to lose out at at Wembley. What's your memories of that time and and working with Martin?
1: Martin was probably the manager that I was least close to in the whole time. Very professional guy and did very well for, for the club and a really, really good coach. Excellent coach, actually. But you know when you can know somebody, but you'll never, ever know them. You could know them for like 20 years but you'd never really know the person I think that was what the relationship was was like really with with Martin he was the manager that all of the board really had the least relationship with although you know he was successful during his period and it was all a bit bizarre at the end it was really quite strange I think I just had my first son um, Reuben around the time when Martin resigned but there was a heavy defeat you know we didn't get any indication that things were that he was unhappy or things weren't working and and he basically he left you know we didn't know whether he'd been offered a job somewhere else we'd sort of heard about Hereford and and then nothing seemed to happen it was a very very bizarre end Mm. and I still to this day have no idea Mm. what happened but again we were never close to Martin and I I think he I will always view him as slightly as a, a really nice guy great family great coach, but an an enigma
0: to me. And then obviously the the next manager you appointed was Gary Mills that (laughs) made all the difference in terms of getting us back to the Football League. Again, what what was it that drew you to to Gary Mills? So
1: Gary had done, or was doing incredibly well. You know, you become aware just by chatting and being nosy of what other clubs' budgets are and what they have to work with. And so you get an idea of which managers overperform for the budgets that they're given. And it was clear that Gary was doing well. He's also very charismatic, sociable, enthusiastic. And I think, again, you know, Martin probably lacked that kind of charisma uh, aspect. So I suppose you're always looking in the next manager for something that was missing in in the previous. He came across as somebody that was inspiring. And I think that's what we needed at the time. We needed somebody to inspire and to lift it. And what a great appointment.
0: Superb. The club was able to buy the likes of Jason Walker for 55,000 and a few other players as well. But having sort of seen York's accounts over the years, were these sort of calculated risks? And, and so, so was that squad that season, because it was quite big, was there a sort of danger that? Team had not gone up, that, that it could have had sort of long term implications for York City.
1: I think it was risky, yeah. I think it was risky. During this period, I think this is when Jason became more involved in getting involved in players and player recruitment. And I think going back to what we were saying before, it's difficult because you start to say yes and you start to say yes to, to a manager too much. And it's not easy, you know. And I, you know, I can say that now in my current role and situation that when you're dealing with managers, it's it's hard to say no, because you, you want to succeed. You want them to have the best chance of success, certainly when you like them as well. I think the success came because there was a very, very strong relationship between Gary and Jason. And I think that that brought the success. But at the same time, I think that made it difficult for Jason to say no to some of the decisions. And, you know, thankfully it it did it did pay off. But I think we were aware though that we were going for it, made a decision as a board that you know we had to give this a go. I think there was an awareness that we'd found the right manager and that this, if we're gonna have a chance of getting promoted it's probably going to be with him. And uh, yes, there were risks taken and there was more involvement in in player recruitment from the board than there probably should have been.
0: Because I, I think I'm right in saying that, that Gary wanted <laughs> your dad to, to lead out the team at Wembley in the trophy. So that he clearly must have had more than just a sort of manager board relationship, certainly as opposed to sort of your relationship with Martin Foyle. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, it was a close relationship with the family. Very close. Um, we're all close to Gary, close to his wife, Sue, as well. In football, you come across people that you just get on with and we we just got on very, very well. You know, we were a very sociable family. Gary was sociable. We enjoyed a holiday, you know, with Gary pre-season in Spain. He came over to Spain and there's no doubt, though, that 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 strength of relationship, it really helped us that season. It really did. So I don't look back on that relationship as being unhealthy in any way. I think that it was um, it was a positive
0: relationship, really. Yeah, And that week at Wembley, New Stadium was given what I think was about the 57th green light um, to kind of go ahead what what was your celebration like <laughs> as, a, as a board what, what what do you remember about that time because it must have eight years was was long for the fans but as you as a support long term supporters but also being on the board that like you say you felt a bit of responsibility for the relegation but to bounce back it must have been a relief a, a massive celebration what, what was your memories about there was just a confidence around the team
1: I think we'd had a lot of luck that season there was like a positivity that creates like good luck it was kind of felt weird the whole season and yeah going to Wembley uh, was just a whirlwind we'd sort of organized everything obviously we'd been before so that helped because it was I think it would have been completely overwhelming if we hadn't gone through the process a couple of times before but yeah I mean for personally for me it was just an utter privilege I mean to sit in the royal box and you know watch your team that you've supported since you're a kid go out and win twice it's just like a dream come true it was a fairy tale I think the Luton thing was it's what we all wanted you know we we had a bad relationship with Luton really bad and it was a lot of tension behind the scenes and that was the one obviously for promotion as well but um, that was the one we we all wanted to win and it was a crazy time and you know the the picture that is always shown was know you know in the footage and gary just like falling to his knees you know and that's how we all felt i think we all felt like we mm-hmm. fall to, to our knees i mean i was um i was heavily pregnant at the time <laughs> so there was no there was no booze involved in in the celebrations but um yeah i mean when we equalized um my poor son who was less than two I got like thrown to the floor and I can remember sort of looking down and this this child sort of on the floor you know (laughs) in the royal box it was just a crazy 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 week and everybody was on a high and I think that that team deserved the success that they achieved I think they were lucky along the way but I think that there was such amazing team spirit and that was totally due to Gary and, and how how he man manages. He has a style. It is in the style of Brian Clough. And there I a I don't know if I would say drinking culture within the team. Um, I don't think there was because they were quite young. But he would certainly let them go for a beer. And I think on that that Wembley weekend, you know, they had a couple of beers before the match to relax them touring around London. Which you know some managers wouldn't do. You know, they would say right, got to focus. And but he knew how to manage those players. Players and you have to again you know we were aware that they were going out going to have a walk around london have a couple of beers by the river we were aware of that and again you know it's not for the board to intervene because that's your that's the manager's decision he knows the team he knows how to prepare them and it you know worked to his advantage and he looked after those players very well he he really genuinely cared For the players, and I think you know that showed he he managed them really well. And there were some personalities that were weren't always easy to manage and had
0: different expectations. But he he looked after them well, and he made the right decisions. You you mentioned before there about the tension with Luton. Did that spill over then into the boardroom? You know, I I, I always imagine that sort of being players. And I know Dave Flett as a journalist, had a had a few issues with Luton Town. So so was that an issue at boardroom level as well?
1: Yeah, well, it came from the uh, 2010 playoff semi-final and obviously we won the game the player you know there was a pitch invasion players were pretty much attacked fans were attacked I'd never seen anything like it to be quite honest we had the Archbishop of York with us at that game as well and he he got abused and we went back into the boardroom at Luton and we were practically locked in the boardroom for our own safety and you know Nick Owen who was the chairman just came over and he said do you know what the problem is he said you weren't supposed to win and that was the reaction we got and then subsequently because they weren't specifically penalized for what happened on that day and there were horrific scenes for any kids there it must have been really really frightening you know I spoke out and sp- said that you know i feel that they should have been the club should have been penalized in some way for the actions of the supporters and then you know i then got a barrage of email abuse death threats police were involved I then you know went to kenilworth road the next time he played and got abusive chants got intimidated i think the problem that you've got is that you know these things happen in, in football sadly but you hope that the opposing team and their board protect you and you know stand up for you in some way and that didn't happen so when we went to Wembley the relationship with their directors was rock bottom we just about spoke to each other but they disliked us and, and, and you know we disliked them and so Matty Blair's offside goal
0: <laughs> was
1: just the icing on the cake <laughs>
0: Yeah, we, we we attempted then at that point when when Marty Blair did score that goal to sort of jump on the on the on the royal box seats. Would you still let us?
1: <laughs> yeah, but that, that was the point. Yeah, when we uh, I think I threw my child to the ground. Yeah, you know, it was great. I mean, we we were just so pleased for for the players as well. You know, that was it was you know you got to remember that a lot of them were young and some of them will never ever get to do anything like that ever again. So you know, for some it's the pinnacle and it's something that they'll always remember. So yeah a great team spirit we we're all in it together really from the board you know right down to every all the staff at the club everybody was in it together and, and the fans it was it was just a phenomenal sort of week that is almost like a haze really when I look back because I think it was just so intense
0: emotionally. And, and it must have been intense emotionally eight months later having to sack Gary Mills which which again was seen as, as pretty ruthless by the board. And that must have been a really difficult decision, obviously, explaining your, the relationship there between Gary and, and Jason in particular. And it, it was sort of pretty much straight after the Bradford City game. Had that decision already been made? Was it was it after that game? When did you decide to, to part company with Gary? Which must have been, I know you said before about sentiment not being there, but but given what you've said about the relationship with Gary and being on holiday with him and stuff like that, that must have been a really tough decision. Yeah, tough
1: yeah. the relationship between Gary and Jason had uh, deteriorated. In that season and I think I listened to the, the Gary's podcast and you know and he mentioned that as well it hadn't been the same and it stemmed from sadly it stemmed from going to Benidorm which I'd organized as a treat for all of the players and everything and the relationship had sort of deteriorated from there and I think that the decision to sack Gary I have always maintained was the right decision I know Gary's position and I love Gary and we're still friends and still friends with his wife. And I think that Gary would truly believe that we were going to stay up and that it was going to be no problem. But I believe that we would have gone down. And I think that although the relationship had deteriorated with Jason, I don't think it was a vindictive decision to sack Gary at all. It was very much a practical decision. And certainly that game that we played at Northampton under Nigel Worthington, there's no way we would have won that game. I think we won the game if Gary had been in charge it was we got points that i don't think we would have got i think the the problem was that when we got into the into the football league was that clubs were more uh, equipped at analyzing and looking at other clubs and getting reports on other clubs and how they play, et cetera. And I think Gary's position was, he never looked at the opposition. It was always about, it was the Brian Clough style. It was all of us about how we play. And that's fine, but we got found out all the time. You know, they would just put two men on Matty Blair and that was it. Gary didn't have the ability to change things and we needed to change in order to stay up. We needed to be a tougher side and we needed to ensure that the, that the defence was strengthened and that we didn't leak any goals. So, it, although a really grim tough decision and not something that I ever thought would happen. You know, I don't think, think post Wembley, you know, you just envisage that this was going to be a really long term, you know, you think Dario Gradi, you know, Dario Gradi, sort of, you know, 16 years at the club, you know, that sort of type of thing. And so it, it was a shock, but um I did support the decision. Everybody, the whole board supported the decision because I think we knew that the only chance of staying up with the fixtures that we had was to bring somebody else in. So so, yeah, hard, sad day.
0: Where was the decision to bring Nigel Worthington in? Was was that something that I presume that that was sort of premeditated for the fact that he took over literally straight away rather than kind of having um, applications come in?
1: Yeah, um, it was the timing was a necessity. You know, we didn't have time to go through a process. So it was these things happen in football. It's not nice, but, but you, you know, you do have discussions in the background if you think that a change is needed, and that does happen at all levels. So we had met Nigel, and he was obviously, you know, well known to us because he'd been in you know, Norwich and Northern Ireland manager. And he just offered what we needed at that time. And we felt that if he could keep us up, and you know, he'd pretty much kind of done his job he'd had experience of this at Leicester so he'd gone into Leicester I think with 10 games to go and, and save them from relegation so there was a bit of a track record of going in with a sh- in a short period of time and changing things around and he did and you know we stayed up and very grateful and again another we were blessed really with a host of great guys to work with and again a really real gentleman who again we've we've stayed in you know I stay in touch with and have always appreciated his contribution to the club I think the style of football was difficult because he was about strengthening the defence and getting the odd goal so that's something completely different for the fans because you know we were used to that free-flowing entertaining football from gary mills but it was what we needed and required at the time and he contributed a lot nigel behind the scenes because he really encouraged development of the training ground and improving the training ground he saw it as a little project i think he saw it as you know i'm going to make this club the best and leave it in a better state than when I when I came and he did do that and he was very very dedicated it took its toll though because you know he lived in 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 Norfolk and that commute was just horrific and being the person that he was so diligent he would set off at like four in the morning to get up to York and I think it took its toll in
0: in the end but he was certainly a pleasure to work with and I learned a lot from him. Great job Nigel and and I think a lot of fans were sort of sad to see him go when he did. Then went for Russ Wilcox who on paper was a good appointment, you know he, he'd done well with Scunthorpe the year before didn't quite work out. I mean I think there was a sliding doors moment really at this point for, for York City Football Club with, with Jackie McNamara coming in and I, and I believe that was kind of a, like a, a proper application process I think Richard Creswell was, was strongly considered. What what mm. did that process consist of? What When you're interviewing a manager, do they have, do they have to present things? that what, what do you ask him to do? And, and second about what was it a unanimous decision from the board to appoint Jackie?
1: I mean, first of all, Russ Wilcox is a great guy. I really wished it had worked out for him at York. It didn't. And the fans never really warmed to him. And I could never quite understand it because he was from Yorkshire. He was straight talking. Again, maybe the style of football, but the, the fans never really took to Russ. And he's great. And I'm really hope that he he does really well with Farsley Celtic because he deserves it um he's um he's a top guy and again another brilliant guy that we've met and um had the pleasure of knowing but yeah the pro so um it was a proper application process we had time we we're in a different situation than before and we interviewed probably six different managers they all have different attributes and when it when it is when you're interviewing some people will do uh, say i'd like to do a powerpoint presentation some people will just kind of go through let you ask questions and go through the cv others might have been to a game because they've know that they're going to apply so they've been to watch a game and they'll say look this is my analysis of what I think you need to change things so it's a real kind of mixed bag regarding how people present themselves and we had some really good candidates and um, Richard and Jonathan Greening had taken the team for a game. With hindsight Richard probably would have been a great appointment I think it was felt like it was a risk looking back it probably wasn't a risk. The decision to appoint Jackie again I feel that it's only one of my other slight regrets that goes with the Billy sacking and this appointment you know when you're in a room and everybody else in the room thinks that something's brilliant and you kind of don't get it i remember and all the board felt the same and you know i remember jason saying you know this is this guy's great it's fantastic da, da da gonna be brilliant for the club and even you know even i think my dad said you know this looks like a good appointment you know done great things in scotland you know time for some rock and roll you know let's liven it up you know and <laughs> i didn't get this from this individual i just didn't get any charisma didn't get any inspiration you know he seemed a really nice guy but I wasn't kind of getting the same vibe and I think my only regret is probably going along with things when maybe I should have sort of questioned a bit more and said I'm not you why are we going for this person over this other person? Because we had some really good candidates. So we made the appointment and obviously, you know, you know, how things went. They didn't it didn't go well at all. But a very, very strong relationship developed between Jackie and Jason, incredibly strong. And you know, Jason was always felt that
0: he was the right person for the job, always. Over this interview, we've sort of talked about the sort of history of, of your time there, but there was a ruthlessness. You know, there's a ruthlessness with Bill with Billy, there was one with with Gary Mills. And the ruthlessness was was just lacking on this one. You know, it seemed more obvious this time with this appointment that it wasn't working out really early doors for me. No, Um, yeah. And it it just wasn't there. Was that because of that relationship then between Jason and Jackie? I think it must
1: have been. I mean, I, I left the board, my last board meeting was in January 2016. So we were in League Two. Yes, I think there were a lot of rumblings about it not being the right appointment. I got a message from a player's father who was saying you know, this guy's either a genius in the way he operates or completely ill prepared on the on the training field. So there were mootings, but then it was difficult to judge because obviously people were making noises around the Christmas time that please do something, it's really not right. But then the people that were telling the board were people that had self interest. So it's very difficult to know what happens on the training ground is is really what happens on the training ground unless you go and and you you attend training, which we, you know, we didn't generally do as a board. So I think there was a feeling that all was not well and there were some changes that were made and some players were excluded and put on the periphery that were quite capable of playing at that level. I think it was sold a lot to to Jason on the basis that I think he'd had a good track record of like selling young players and generating revenue. So I think there was this view that there was all this pot of amazing young players in Scotland that could come down and contribute to the club and and then go off and that the club could could earn some cash from yeah that didn't materialize but yeah as i said you know my last board meeting was um was january 2016 and that was my father's last board meeting as well. And we both we both left together.
0: And why did you both leave together? What was it that ju- just feeling that you'd come to the end? What what was there a, a particular moment or was it something that built up over time?
1: I think we were asked to leave. I was asked to leave JM packaging and I was asked to leave the football club. My father was asked to leave the football club as well. So when you look back, it's very difficult, you know, I have not We obviously spoken to my brother for... I have spoken to him, but I haven't, you know, had a relationship with him since then. My father didn't have a relationship with him either. And, you know, sadly, my father died and my brother didn't attend his funeral or come when he was dying. So it's been really hard. I think the football took its toll. Working together and doing the football, which you kind of alluded to earlier, which worked in the early days, started to take its toll. I think um, Jason made more autocratic decisions as time went on and didn't involve other members of the board. And, also, you know, within the within the actual business as well, there was the tension. Uh, you know, my father was getting older and um, I think he thought that he would sort of pass on his shareholding to me. And I don't think that was acceptable to my brother. So, yeah, I think it is just a it just degenerated over a period of time. And I suppose you could with hindsight, you could kind of see it coming. So yeah, the, f- the family com- was completely fractured. And it was hard for me to leave York City, you know, because it was a big, big part of my life. And, you know, it was something that was quite hard to come to terms with, really. Although, you know, I was very grateful of the fact that I was able to make a transition, you know, back onto the terrace. And that was something I was quite proud of. I don't think a lot of people that have being a director for, say, well, I think it was 13 years in the end, can easily make that transition back and be accepted. And I think I I was, and I was grateful for that. And I think that was down to the fact that, you know certainly during my time at York City I tried very much to be open and communicate as much as we I could with the supporters and I was involved in you know fans forums and hosting those and absolutely wanted to make me and the rest of the board accessible and approachable you know that was the remit that was what I hoped to achieve and I think I did do that I think sadly after the departure of me and my dad. And I have to say that my father was a great influence on that board because he was so sensible. And, you know, often when... If Jason or I, because I'm inclined to be um, enthusiastic and excitable, if we were getting carried away with anything, you know, my dad would be that sensible, calming kind of figure that would, would would rein us in. And that was really important to the dynamic of the board. So I think that when I left and I would always tell it how it is, you know, I, w- I would be strong and tell it how it is. So I was often you know, quite confrontational if I felt that, you know, it was something that I wanted to fight for. So when I left, I think that, you know, you suddenly left with a situation where you haven't got that calming influence, that sensible old older wise head that helps to kind of keep that calmness about the board and then you also didn't have me that was probably the person that challenged the most and had a very close relationship with Jason so you know we would exchange ideas and bounce things off each other you didn't have that and so the, the board then it just appeared from obviously being an outsider that you know the doors just shut and you know communication with supporters was pretty non-existent, relationship with the trust was hostile relationship with supporters was hostile it seemed like Jason didn't have anybody on the board that could help him in the same way that dad and I had really and you could see it, you know you could see it degenerating again and two successive relegations were
0: Pretty awful. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your honesty over that because I know some of that will have been difficult to talk about. I mean, the statements about both your departures, you and your dad, were, were very formulaic at the time. And you mentioned about your dad passing away not too long ago and the lack of tribute to him. I think you've you've sort of spoken out about as well. That must make it difficult to not be bitter about York City. I mean, credit to you going back in the stands <laughs> and trying to support the club again. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would have just said, right, that's me done and and, and kind of completely have it in their past
1: well it's not really about the club though is it I mean that's that's it you know the club will always be the club and the club will be there hopefully you know long after I've gone and the club will always York City will always be my first love and that goes back to our earlier chat and how I never really felt part of anything until I went to York City and it just gave me a kind of sense of belonging and it will always be my first love my, my club but yeah it is hard to not feel bitter I was really Really, really upset that there was no tribute to my father when he died. He was a very private man and he wouldn't have particularly wanted all kind of <laughs> bells and whistles. But yes, yeah, certainly I think um, a minute's applause or a minute's silence would have been appropriate. So I did have a conversation with one of the current directors. I was pretty cross and pretty animated. And he confirmed that, you know, that that any any tribute had been vetoed by by Jason, by the chairman, and that that wasn't uh, wasn't allowed. So it is sad, and he has his own reasons for feeling cross and angry. But uh, it will, as I said, still be my club, and I still love York City. I think it's hard for me at the moment to you know I don't have a desire to go to home games at the moment but I have a requested I think there, there are I haven't actually been to the new stadium which is crazy but um, there is um, a wall with some tiles that you can purchase so I have requested a tile sort of dedicated to my dad from from my two boys and I'm hoping that 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 will appear on that board and and it will be
0: allowed because it's it's from my children to their grandfather absolutely and I you know I'm sure York City fans would echo that those sentiments and and it's interesting you mentioned about the new stadium and and I presume that you hadn't been to it there there was a slight chance for Tombridge Angels who you're now um associated with (laughs) could have played York City in the FA Trophy I mean had that crossed your mind
1: yeah of course yeah I was like on the WhatsApp group to the diet to the Tombridge directors saying oh god we're all watching the draw you know. we were desperate we were wondering whether I'd get banned from the boardroom that was the only yeah that was the only question but no um, yeah I'm now associate with Tunbridge Angels it's been um, a real pleasure actually feel that I've been able to make a difference through my experience they're local to us about 25 minutes from where we live really really nice people it's completely supporter owned which is great I was elected which was I was grateful to being a token northerner in <laughs> in the football club but yeah it's it's super we've the chairman there is a guy called Dave Netherstreet he's done a great job but it was he was really you know struggling and pretty much drowning in lockdown just didn't know couldn't see a way forward and i met him by chance really through somebody mutual that we knew and i kind of went in to have a chat with him and he just said look will you just do a report on what you see how, where the club is now what, how we can change things and so i went through all the accounts and basically it was a really well-run club but they just weren't generating any revenue so I've kind of put things in place for them and we've now got a sort of buoyant commercial department and also a um, events and hospitality because they have a huge marquee on site and it's been great I've been welcomed and and embraced and I'm really enjoying it actually and it's just good that I can bring some of that experience because they've been you know 13 years is quite a long time in football and you do know things that are wrong and Things that work and they don't work. So I've just helped to to bring that to them and recently just raised six hundred and fifty thousand pounds from supporters, which is amazing, in a matter of weeks to install a three G pitch. So the aspiration for Tunbridge Angels is to try and get promoted into the National League and to be sustainable really through the income that you generate through a three G pitch. So it's a it's a it's a good experience for me. And what I needed to do was watch football that I cared about again because our you know i just didn't I just couldn't watch anything other than York that I cared about. And because, you know, I've got to know, obviously, the manager very well. He's a really good manager, knows the non-league scene very well. He's been at the club seven years. And then also, you know, with with the boys, you know, I wanted to take my children and we go as a family with my husband. We all watch the
0: matches. So it's nice to care about football again, I have to say. Great that you're back involved with football. You know, you've obviously got so much to offer. And, and it sounds like you've got a new lease of life with that football club. And, and I think you're kind of very suited to that family orientated football club as well so I think it looks from the outside to be such a great fit for you
1: yeah it's really good and I um you know I did at first though I did feel guilty it's so bad because it was like oh I'm being disloyal to York City you know <laughs> but yeah it's, it, it works well and geographically I have to be realistic as well you know I'm not going to get up to uh to all the games at York so but I will come I am going to come I'm going to come hopefully um pre-season I'll get up and, and, and come to the new stadium because I you know I've heard really good things about it actually from people so um so I look forward I'm I don't know where to go, though. I don't know which stand to go in. (laughs) where do you go where's the cool where's the cool place to be
0: I think, I think the cool kids go in the South Stand right um, okay obviously in the media <laughs> bit but yeah um, yeah I think the South Stand is, is the place to go looking back now just finally on, mm. on your York City career what, what what were your proudest moments looking back what what if you were to take one thing would you say I'm really pleased with looking back at that experience
1: I'm really pr- pleased of the work that I did with the community department I tried my best as you know we met many years ago <laughs> we did. At Joseph Round school so i you know i tried I've, I've got a passion for delivering football in the community and i think that a great achievement from where we started or when we were basically in i think five schools in york was just helping to transform that community department and make sure that we were you know as active as possible so that was a big achievement and obviously clearly the week at wembley i mean i think that has to be something you would put on your football CV was just <laughs> sure. being part of that and helping and being part of that whole whole journey. But uh, yeah, I'm, mo- I'm most proud of the relationships as well and long-standing relationships that that I made with supporters that who I'm still, you know, friendly with, obviously, and, you know, and managers. So I think it's just proud to have had to make ruthless decisions, but still being able to pick up the phone and have a beer with those people you've had to make those dis- difficult decisions with, because that's something that's quite an achievement.
0: Well, Sophie, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure speaking to you. I, you know, I know there were some difficult conversations in there, but I hope that on the whole, you've kind of really enjoyed looking back on your career with York City. And I'm sure you'll be w- welcomed with, you know, open arms when you do come to community stadium
1: oh thank you I just you know I just wish York City all the best and hopefully now at this moment in time you know things seem to appear to be positive and you know that hope that everything works out and get promotion ASAP